MFs, welcome back. Hustle like you broke. Middle of August should be airing in just a couple days. So my usual opening diatribe should hopefully be more relevant to those tuning in. Big news in the world. For those of you who haven't been paying attention, Big Brother is back. Isn't everyone excited? Dallas, I know you tune in to Big Brother. Tell me. I Tell mean, me. Uh, no, I can't say that I do. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Well, I would be hugely disappointed, but truth be told, neither do I. I uh, saw the headline and uh, just thought that'd be a good place to start. The news, of course, is twofold. One, dear leaders trying to dismantle the post office. And why not? It's not like it's written into the Constitution. Oh, wait, it is. It's a funny thing. This party that claims to believe in strict adherence to the Constitution routinely overlooks it. But I understand why as I read this public service announcement this morning that said, sorry if your medications are delayed in arrival for these next few months. Our president needs to mess with the Postal Service to rig an election. And I'm just going to leave that right there. Because the good news is Biden finally picked a running mate. Have to be honest, I really think Kamala Harris is the safe choice and may or may not have been my first option, but it is historic. I am hugely appreciative to have a woman of color as vice president will be amazing. And I did say will. I just hope her being from North California, Northern California, doesn't work against our efforts to get votes in places like Georgia and Florida and North Carolina. But I have to admit the one thing about the pick that disappoints me isn't who he picked. It's that weeks ago he felt the need to say he would be picking a woman. And recently it's become a daily topic in all media, noting she had to be minority, because I really think he should have said he was going to pick the best candidate for the job. And then when he named Kamala Harris, the selection would resonate that much more. What do you think of that, about that, Brother Banks? Uh, I have a lot to say about that. I don't know. We may have to save that for another... Uh... <laughs> Another talking point. Uh, I don't know. I, I have a lot to say, but I, I don't. I don't want to get too off with our topic. I'm not in agreement. You're not in agreement. I see or hear you sipping on that breakfast cocktail this morning. Oh yeah, it's happening. Give us a little taste. Oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a great uh, little situation. I honestly, um, 
I didn't agree with how he presented it, how he kept pushing that whole topic about how it had to be minority. And then he was saying that he wanted to choose a black woman and all that. I'm like, just, just pick who you want to pick and call it a day. I mean, anybody at this point is better than what we're dealing with right now. So I don't think that that had to be the basis for everything that you said when you were talking about your pick. Well, in that we agree. So moving on in sports, Major League Baseball is happening. Feels kind of like we're in that blasé midseason doldrums already. Perhaps it's just me. My team, Boston Red Sox, are uh, not on a hot streak. Best news I've seen is our former starting pitcher, Joe Kelly, now a member of the Dodgers, used to live right around the corner from me. Super nice guy, super cool neighbor, great to all the kids in the area, really liked him. But I love that he actually just got tossed from a game last week for essentially throwing the ball at a member of the Houston Astros and uh, calling them out for it, calling them out for cheating. He gets suspended eight games, which, by the way, is eight games more than the members of the Houston Astros that cheated to win a World Series. And unfortunately, that's all I can say for Major League Baseball. In NHL news, maybe it's just me, not a huge hockey guy, because they're in the playoffs, and I haven't seen a single headline about it yet. Does anyone give a shit? I don't know. Champions League soccer, on the other hand, has been awesome. Anyone that isn't a fan should be. Amazing pass play. Great rivalries. Tons of fun. My son and I watch it all the time. I love it. And the NBA is picking up steam as the playoffs near there, and I was really hoping to talk a little bit about that with our brother Hamilton today. But I'm sorry to report, Kyle isn't going to be with us. He uh, had a personal reason for taking today off. He himself is fine. I want to be clear. But he did give me permission to say that his absence is COVID-related. Not him, but family. And I only bring that up, and I only asked him his permission to say so, because the truth is, We've been saying since the beginning, when you're out in public, wear a fucking mask. The fuck is wrong with people? Jesus Christ, just wear a fucking mask. Speaking of, in the concert industry, there isn't shit going on in terms of live, in-person events, save for the odd drive-in concert here and there all of which has received some negative press recently in the wake of the Chainsmokers debacle in the Hamptons. Now, I tried to defend the Chainsmokers to a number of people early on. People that live in the Hamptons, for the most part, or some are there, have something of an entitlement complex. Don't mind if I say. CEO of Goldman Sachs, 
David Solomon, a.k.a. DJ D-Soul, opens the show. Kind of a tool bag, calls himself DJ D-Soul when he's the CEO of a multinational conglomerate. But I wanted to defend the chain smokers. I said, you know, when you take the stage, the lights go up, the music starts, the first thing you're thinking as an artist is not about the people in the front row. I assumed it wasn't their fault. I assumed that it was just typical self-entitlement bullshit. But rumor has it, it was actually their guests that were in that pit, not distancing, not wearing masks, not exclusively, but predominantly. And for that, I say shame on them for setting all of us back, because here we are trying to get back to work before long. And please, God, anything and everything that we can do, all of us. This isn't a time to be selfish. This is a time to come together and do what's best. Speaking of which, one last thing before I bring out our guest for today. In the coming weeks, we will be rolling out a couple of new initiatives. We'll be bringing on a couple of guests to talk about roadie engagement, building community, working for the greater good, getting people back to work, not just in the one-on-one capacity with individuals that we've done so far, but in an effort to really, truly mobilize the roadie community. Partially, but not exclusively, in an effort to swing this election in a way that gets us all on course, gets things back to the way life should be, I'm not even going to talk about what's going on in terms of education, putting kids back in school, figuring out the whole hybrid versus virtual model. All I'll say is, please, God, let's fucking figure this shit out so all of us can get back to work. So with that in mind, we do have an amazing guest today who has worked in a variety of roles for a number of companies over the years. He's worked with artists ranging from Stevie Nicks and David Bowie to MIA. He's produced tours for major comedy festivals, including Oddball. He's worked at venues in the LA market, including the Wiltern and the Forum. And he's served in a number of capacities for festivals, including Coachella, Holy Ship, Oddball, as I mentioned before. He did a Call of Duty gaming tournament, and so much more. Please welcome to the program today, Eddie Sato. Thank you guys very much for having me. Eddie, we appreciate you being with us. I would like to say up front, you are widely known as, and in fact, your Twitter handle says that you are <laughs> Uncle Eddie Sato. To start with that. Let's talk about this Uncle Eddie. Concept. Your Uncle Eddie. Uh, it started right at the beginning of college. I just kind of 
I'm a dispenser of old wisdom. <laughs> and uh, it just became a little catchphrase of mine that I, I would just throw out like, yeah, that's one from your Uncle Eddie. Or, hey, listen to your Uncle Eddie when I tell you. And it's just something I've always thrown out. And, and then it took off in the world of social media where people uh, ref- started referring to me uh, as that quite a bit. On Holy Shit, well, I, uh, I, I ended up getting the nickname Sensei. And so the morning announcements came from like, good morning, holy shippers. You are not going to be able to get over to the private island today. And uh, yeah, that was the messages from their sensei. Well, sensei is pretty high praise. And, and, and kudos for that. But I have to say, I love the concept of Uncle Eddie just because, you know, we here profess the importance of this community, as I referenced before, we talk about how, you know, on tour, you become like family and how you carry those relationships long after tour and how we really think about and feel for the people that are struggling right now in the wake of the way of the world and the fact that we haven't really seen each other in six plus months. So I just wanted to call that out. I I really appreciate it. I think it's fantastic. But let's take a step back from that. Talk to us about your history. Talk to us about how you got your start. I understand you were on the USC programming board. I myself was not on my college board, but worked with a number of college boards early in my career. So I definitely see value in, in the education that comes with that. But again, I'd like you to tell your story, if you would, please, and we'll go from there. Uh, Well, I always say my story for entertainment started uh, November 1979 when I begged my mother for tickets to see Kiss um, at the Los Angeles Forum Dynasty Tour. I was seven years old, and uh, she took me to see it, and I I have never forgot – I. To this day, if I'm at a show at the Forum, I go and see who's sitting in my seat um, that I sat in at seven years old. And that's when I decided that I had to be part of the entertainment. I couldn't be part of the audience. And uh, so at some point in college, I went to USC. Actually, even before I got there, I was going to USC film school. My college advisor was the head of the campus spirit group. And she found me like this was your, I I did, I was from Philadelphia. And so I did East coast orientation for USC and she was my orientation advisor. And she found me on campus first week of school and told me that I had to be part. They had lost their homecoming um, lead and I had to be a part of the group. And I was like, I am not a cheerleader. Like that's not my gig. And she's like, no, 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 no. This is like coordinating the concert and all the stuff that has to happen homecoming week. And that was my first time kind of working and coordinating with a concert entity. And we, it was the soup dragons was my very first concert and kind of got hooked on it. And then after college, I struggled throughout my twenties to be a, become a screenwriter and a friend of mine from USC. Um, the actual person who first got me into the program, a gentleman named Brett Carver, who currently works for Needlelander, uh, he would hire unemployed actors and writers, you know, cinema school grads to load trucks at the wheel turn. And that's where I got my start. And I just kind of kept rising up the ladder, as they say, um, 
until I ended up being a production manager. And then once I got to become a production manager, I said, man, I should have just stayed being a stage manager. <laughs> so well, much easier not to spend 24 hours a day on the phone uh, looking at Excel grids. I can definitely appreciate that. So, so tell us about some of these different roles that you filled because you would seem to be something of a jack of all trades. You've been a, a carpenter, you've been a stage manager, you've been a production manager, I mean, and, and so much more. I mean, talk to us about the different roles. Talk to us about the things that, that you've done to give some context, not only about who you are, but for our listeners who are working their way into the industry and, 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 and again, more about, as you just said, the difference between being on stage versus sta- sitting in front of a computer and what have you. So, I, I mean, I really appreciate the name of this, of this program because I have always been one of those people who cannot be working. Just uh, I started working at a mafia-owned restaurant when I was 12 years old, which is illegal, but I did. It was next door to my house, and I have always worked in different entities, just uh, you know, sometimes having two, three jobs at a time when I was in high school. So when I got into, and, and my entrance into the, um, the industry is, this is literally how the, the jump went. I was working three jobs. I was uh, working at a celebrity PR firm as a, you know, a, it was called media relations specialist. You just kind of contact reporters and see who's going to be open to accepting whatever lie you're going to tell them. Um, then I was working as a stagehand at the Wiltern and I was writing freelancing for, um, children's cartoons. I, I wrote for Disney daytime. And then I was working on a show at Fox children or Fox family. And on Friday, I turned in my last script for that show and in animation, daytime animation, everybody's fired after 65 episodes. So I hand in my last script, everyone, all of us let go. Saturday, we did our last show at the Wiltern for like six weeks. Um, this was 2001, and it was, you know, the Wiltern was less of a year-round venue in those days. And then Monday, I went into the PR firm that I was working at, and they laid off my entire department. So I thought I had set a record for being uh, let go from jobs, like losing three jobs in 96 hours, um, pat myself on the back, and I was sitting in, I don't know how we, how this uh, program feels about recreational drug use, but I was sitting on my couch about to light a bowl, which I don't do very often. I was like, I have no work to do. I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to head to unemployment. And a friend called and said, Hey, what are you doing? I told him what happened. He said, Stevie Nicks is rehearsing down the street at Sony studios. Can you go over there and just be a body? And I went and she had all these, um, they had all these theatrical things they wanted to do, but a bunch of old roadies who really didn't, I don't know if they had their theatrical chops, but because working at the Wiltern, uh, these were things I did every day. So I made a few recommendations and they looked at me and said, Hey kid, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, nothing. He's like, come back. So I come back the next day. They had a list of 10 questions for me, answered them all. And then they were like, what are you doing for the next six weeks? So I was like, nothing. I was going to collect unemployment. They're like, no, you're coming on tour with us. So that was my, jump up. And then very quickly, I went from when you come back off tour, there's a there's kind of a way of you just looked at differently locally. So I was looked at different at the building. And then over the course of years, uh, Live Nation, which was Clear Channel in, um, started trusting me and I became a promoter rep. And I quickly learned that 
one of the things that could separate me from the pack, or at least my own way of doing things, was I had the experience of being from a venue, being with the tour, and being with the promoter. And it gave me, I learned that it gave me a different perspective when it came to settlement and how we did things, because I look at all three things and try to come to what I understand is a fair balance, as opposed to everyone else, well, so many other people getting in that room and fighting for their piece of cheese. Um, so yeah, I just, so everything that I've done, all the different levels, um, I have a big belief, and I'll, I'll get to this later if we want to talk about it, but one of my like five tenets of how I, you know, judge myself in this industry, number one is be good at every rung. You know, you're going to go up and down the ladder throughout your career, be good at every rung, and never think you're too good to do a rung that you did when you started. Well, first of all, I, I, I think I should point out that we wholeheartedly encourage <laughs> recreational drug use on this program, especially when listening to this, this program in particular. I think that that uh, makes it that much more enjoyable. Uh, second of all, I, I, you are not the first person on this program to say you got your start working at a mafia-owned operation. So <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you've ever run into an enforcer by the name of Patrick Dearson. I have never. Well, I am disappointed to hear that. <laughs> and I want to get back to these five tenants. You just gave us your first one. But before you tell us more of those... Tell me this, what is the biggest difference between working on the artist side and working on the promoter side? Because again, among all of these experiences you've had, you've really worked on all sides, seen all angles. And I'm, I'm very curious about that. The differences. Here's a, here's a story that I've was passed on to me, and it's still one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. Uh, it's about ACDC. And they had a new tour manager at the time, and um, he had opened seats past the 180 line. Had us release this is um, um, so that you know fans are now on the side of the stage. Band does the show, and they come off the stage, and they are livid that that uh, that patrons were to the side of the stage, and they asked you know who made that call, and it was pointed out that the new tour manager had. And ACDC apparently does a thing where if anyone messes up during the show, they are called to the dressing room. The band is assembled there. The band yells at them, and then they hug it out. Like, that's how it works. That's how family works. So they had the new tour manager come in, and they laid into him about why he would open those, those seats. And they listed, this is the way we see a show. Number one. Did the fans have a good time? Number two, did we have a good time? Three, did we make any money? Like, look at the order that that asks, that that is in, and that's the way things have to run here. I'm a big believer in that. I remember even when I was in college, one of my VPs of student affairs, he had this sign behind his desk that said, um, if you sacrifice the needs of the student for the needs of the university, you'll soon have no 
um, university to sacrifice for. There's a certain point when you have to remember that. Uh, this is a great quote. There's a gentleman named Gene Felling who gave me this. It's like, we're not in the live entertainment business. We're in the memory business. We're, or our job is to create memories that, that someday down the line you hear somebody talking about the most amazing show they ever saw, their first show that changed their life. And if that's a show you worked on, that's fulfilling. At least for me, that really, that gets me. Um, so I'm a big, uh, I don't even know where I started with this, but that's what I feed on. And so working on artists, working with, with as a promoter side, I'm always thinking, I'm always looking at the audience. It's, it's literally my favorite thing to do, especially on a metal show, because I was a metalhead teenager, is to get in the pit, to get in the inside the barricade, make sure nobody's getting beat up as they get dragged over, but also letting them know, like, hey, man, it's cool. Go over there. Don't do it again. Come on, man. Um, I just love seeing the looks on people's faces in that audience, and I'll never, I, I promise myself I'll never get jaded about that. Well, I appreciate that very much, but I just want to clarify. So you're saying... In your experience, both the artist and the promoter side are essentially fan-oriented and very much on the same side of the page in terms of their outlook and objective. I, I, I would say they should. I have definitely come across artists who, I won't say the name of the act, but there was, I think, the first act I ever got, on, got into a fight with on stage. Um, they came off and their manager had asked me what the uh, curfew penalty was. And I told him. And so they, they were going to go over curfew and the manager turns to the guys like, Hey guys, let's get back out there. And one of the members of their bands said, F them. They need to yell louder referring to the audience. And I standing right there was on calm and went, go, go house lights. And their manager like grabbed me like, no, 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 no. And I just went off. I was like, F these guys, F these hicks. Like that, that, those people out there, their fact that for some odd reason, they enjoy your terrible music. That's the way you're getting to make any kind of living playing what you do. And to show them that kind of disrespect to say F them. Um, you know, if you don't want to do an encore, don't do an encore, but you know, they need to yell louder for your approval and get the, get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well I, I, I want to point out, I think it's remarkable, actually, that it's the artist who said F them to the fans. We, we can say fuck around here, actually. Yeah. I don't even know why I just said F them. Okay. Um, I, I'm the first one to use the, you know, motherfucker in everyday correspondence. Um, but you said it was the artist who actually is more likely to say fuck them about the fans as opposed to the promoter. Well, this specific artist said that. They were, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I asked the question, that was your answer. I'm just saying. Yeah. I like that. I am impressed by that, and I do appreciate that. So you really have worked for a cross-section of promoters in the industry, too. Again, your current company, which we haven't even gotten to yet, Red Rock, is a subsidiary of Live Nation, but you had formerly worked in, in other capacities with Live Nation, I believe. You've worked with AG, at least with Golden Voice. You work with Hard, which I guess now is a subsidiary of Live Nation. Are they not? Uh, They are. Yeah, but I started with them when they were still independent. 
And, and yeah, exactly. So you really have seen the way a number of different promoters operate. I mean, can you speak to some of the differences between promoters? No, I, it's another one of those things where I try not to get too involved in the business or, or wrapped up in the minutia of how certain people do things. I know that like when I started working for Golden Voice um, on Coachella, that they, I definitely was there when it transformed from this kind of quirky uh, music festival in the desert to a thing, like the insanity of of just people, break, you know, tens of thousands of people trying to break into it, and watching, like being there during those years from '09 to 2012, it was. Um, it was great to see them grow. Same thing with hard. When, when Gary Richards, Richards hired me, that was also, I think that was so 2010 was my first one. I think I believe with him. Um, that was another thing to watch him grow that business and all the growing pains we went through to the, to where live nation bought him. And then super fun part of that was um, live nation at that time was gobbling up um, different EDM promoters and I got called into a room with a couple high-end execs and my the guy who had regularly been hiring me and he just went you are going to tell us everything we need to know about EDM it's like all right I'm, I'm the expert in the room sounds great here you go um, but yeah I've worked with I mean years I have like I'm an employee now but man I I loved being freelance um just the ability to pick and choose who I worked with. And that, that was, I got to say, like, that was one of the things like working with hard. Another promoter had brought me in for an interview and I was sitting there going, these people are absolutely nuts. And there was definitely Coke residue all over the conference room table that I was sitting at. And I was like, look, I like the party, but I am, I am half Japanese. I am, as samurai work mode as you can get. I am very strict about how things work. And I then went to interview at hard and talked to Gary about that. I would not ever sacrifice health and safety. Just wouldn't. And, um, he was like, I'm totally on board with that. Whatever you need, you let me know. Cause it's like, I hear you're the guy, you're the man. And I want my festivals to become big. And so yeah, it started an amazing relationship. So, that that essence of of freelancing, like I've just always been able to. I mean, I've had, like trust me. There's been a few events I've worked at where I like when I got hired for the the forum gig, or at least asked to come in. I was setting up a fashion show at the Mandalay Bay Event Center, and I was on a ladder when I took the phone call, and the person asked me what my salary requirement was, and I said one dollar more, like. I don't care. Get me out of this situation. I'll take it. Whatever the, yeah. So yeah, I've been blessed to be able to pick and choose who I've worked with. And, and the reality of the, the company I work for now, it was really just my long-term boss at Live Nation. And we can get into this longer, but what, why we split off. off. Um, just asked myself and a few other people that we had regularly worked with if we wanted to start our own team. And he knew how much I hate being an employee. 
Um, but I was like, yeah, I'll go in and let's adventure with you. Let's do it. Um, and it's kind of great to, you know, even though we don't go in the office every day now, uh, it's been great over the past few years to work with like your best friends every day. Well, I think that you made a very eloquent way of not answering the question. (laughs) My avoiding of saying like, Oh yeah, those guys over there are idiots and those guys are just money grubbing. No, in the end of the day, like, I mean, I've, when I talk about like the list of people that I look up to and admire, I mean, the, the, the first one, uh, Brian Murphy, like the fun that I have with Brian Murphy over the years. And, and, um, why am I drawing a blank on Nick's last name? Uh, hate getting old and forgetful. Um, Nick over at Live Nation, I'm drawing a blank on his last name and he should probably disown me. Um, but just an amazing, fun person. The fun I've had with Paul Tillette over the years. Like, <laughs> I posted something about Coachella. He retweeted it and I was like, ah, did you see how the, you know, the creator of Coachella um, retweeted me? No big deal. You know, just, how I roll, you know, um, Bill Silva, Bill Silva to stay like such a good dude that, you know, I've worked with and, and has, you know, hired me a bunch of times when I was, you know, I, I didn't think I was much to speak of, but they saw some, something in me and gave me a chance. So I really, yeah, I'm not, I, I can't think of any one promoter where I'd be like, F those guys, I'd never work with them be- again. Cause I tend to, um, yeah, I hate to say this, but when you're dead to me, you're dead to me. I don't, my brain does not link or, or stay thinking about someone that I did not enjoy my time with. Fair enough. We'll give you a pass. <laughs> so, Hey, if you, you want to talk know. about something I do hate, oh Please. my God, you're going to, this may end the interview, but me and the 86 Red Sox, like, I hate, like, I am an Angels guy I, that, like, all my sports allegiances start with Nolan Ryan and Rod Carew in the 70s Angels, and that, oh, when, was it Jim Rice hits that home run? I, mm no, and, like, the fact that that ball went through Buckner's legs, that's just karma to me, like, yeah. Ouch. Okay. <laughs> okay, gloves are off. Fight! Fight! <laughs> Engage! Let's go! Let's go! Wow. Okay. I mean, look, I understand as as a longtime Pats fan, I, you know, I understand that when you live in Titletown, USA, people are always kind of <laughs> punch up and uh, talk shit. And, you know, I mean, it is what it is when you, when you have as many titles to your credit as Boston does, I mean, it comes with the territory. So I can live with that. We're all good. (laughs) That's funny is my sweet little five foot tall Italian mother who doesn't feel any hates Tom Brady with such a red hot passion. And like she, like when I was growing up, she, my mother had the worst mouth of all time. Like she's the kind of person to go in a bar and sailors would come running out, but she became this sweet little old grandmother. But my, I guess, step uncle. So it's my, my, my stepfather's cousin is Rich Gannon who played for the Raiders. And the fact that the, the, like my mom is still holding on to the tuck rule. She'll never let up. Like, 
She has no hatred of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who just absolutely destroyed Rich in the Super Bowl. She hates Tom Brady and the Patriots. Then, like, you can't talk her down from it. Like, I, like I'm like, look, I may not like the Patriots. I don't root for them. But I have respect for what the organization has achieved and what Bill Belichick has done. I mean, that's, it's unprecedented. But, man, like, listening to my mom, like, the littlest things that Tom Brady does and my mom – flies into an expletive filled rage that like my brother and I fall over laughing. It's, it's, it's amazing to watch. <laughs> I, I would, I would enjoy that very much. I would love that. I, it's not that I'm uh, immune because I certainly respond and react, but uh, again, I, you get accustomed to that in time and uh, you reach a point where it's like uh you know, you almost, it, it's almost it just, it's, it's a good thing at this point that Tom has moved on and the Pats have an opportunity to regrow and we don't have to keep hearing about the fact that the, the league is, you know, completely, uh, you know, bends on its knee uh, for the Patriots between the rule changes. And I mean, the reality of the matter is there isn't anywhere in the world that is as as heavily scrutinized as the as the Boston sports teams the 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 entire NFL changes rules every year based on the ways the patriots read the rule book and win and they adhere to the rules and win and the rule book needs to be changed and yet you know they make a big deal of bullshit like deflate gate and everybody comes out and says oh well i like the ball heavy and oh well i use stick among my gloves and nobody says a fucking thing about it and like i said earlier about the houston astros in baseball like if it was a fucking red Sox that was caught cheating in the world series it would be like fucking world war three but because it's not who cares no big deal. This the fact that fucking when Peyton Manning when it came out that Peyton Manning had been taken HGH and the evidence was right there in the packages that had been sent to his house. Yeah, it was in his wife's name. I mean, hello, she's fucking five foot nothing and not taking HGH. But the NFL swept it under the rug, said, oh, no big deal. Who cares? It's just Peyton being Peyton and he's amazing and just delivered a Super Bowl to the Broncos. If that was the fucking Patriots, it'd have been a fucking $10 million fine instead of just the one for the bullshit deflate gate. And good grief, you're getting me going now. Let's just move on. I, I felt the heat. I liked it. <laughs> Trust me, I am with you on this Houston Astros thing. I am, I haven't officially boycotted baseball, but I just, the fact that they took no action on that just said, okay, so cheating's fine. I'm out. Like, I, I mean, just. The whole thing about the, the the steroid era too. I mean, now we're just going going on a totally left field tangent. But the reality, like Bonds, deserves to be in the fucking Hall of Fame. Clemens deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And no laws between me and Clemens because as soon as he went to the Yankees and said he wanted to be retired as a Yankee, like fuck you, what? But I mean, <laughs> these are people who belong in the Hall of Fame, like. Bonds would take away all of Bonds home runs every single one of them and he still has the credentials to be in the Hall of Fame like he is one of the great baseball players of all time I mean but they're they're so biased about the stare you got to look at every era based on what's happening you got to take it for what it is you got to recognize that 
you know, what's going on around them. Every era has its own, you know, different elements and things that make it different from the era before. And you just can't compare them. You just got to take the players. And this is all sports, all leagues. It's music. It's everything. You just got to take that point in time and say, this is what it is. And the best rise to the top. And you got to appreciate them for who they are and what they're doing. And it'd be like saying Drake doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame because he's not the Beatles. Like, it's apples and oranges. Yeah. Understood. Anyway. um, Back on track. So, speaking of differences between roles, between companies, and also between entities, how about you tell us a little bit about the difference between working in comedy as well as in music and similarly in gaming? As well as music. Ooh, that's good. I'm going to try and stay on the proper tangent on this one. But so I am a comedy lover. I, one of the most emotional moments I think I've ever had in my career is with Dave Chappelle. Um, Cause oddball. Likewise. Tour. Likewise. I just want to say also me too. Keep going. Uh, so. Just a really wonderful human being. But it's funny you say this. So I, I lecture uh, in the music industry program at USC and I have, when I first became a production manager, first time I got hired to be a production manager, which by the way was Michael Jackson's fan club throwing him his 45th birthday, which can I tell a little side story here? Please. Um, yes. I mean, so, so, <laughs> So this, this, like, there's a lot of nonsense that happens on it, but I'm going to tell this story because it, uh, it's the only time I've ever been pictured in Rolling Stone magazine. Um, there, there was a, the show was supposed to end with an all-star sing-along of We Are the World as like, sing Michael, happy birthday. Then all these all-stars would come out and do We Are the World. Well, we couldn't get everybody into um, a rehearsal studio at, um, at center staging like we we're supposed to. So everyone got a, a, a CD sent to them of what the track was. So everyone could practice to the track and we were going to wing this. So the kid, this young performer who was hired to play the piano, he must have realized right before we opened the curtain that he wasn't actually playing the piano. We were going to play the track that everyone had rehearsed to. So he realized, because he was actually going to sing the opening line, that instead of being behind the piano singing that opening line, if he walked around the front of the piano, he would be standing right next to Michael. So it would kind of be like a duet because Michael had the second line and all the photographers would get a picture of the two of them. I'm the production manager and I'm standing off stage clearcom and I see this kid right as I'm about to make the go curtain call, I see him get up and grab his microphone and stand in front of the piano, which I now know as we're filming this means I'm going to have a piano on stage that no is making noise, but nobody's sitting at. So I throw my headset off. Well, I made the call <laughs> go curtain run out and sit at the piano and pretend to start playing it as the, as the song starts, the kid, after he sings his part and he knows that he's not seen more, then turns to like get sit back down at the piano. And I'm sitting there looking at him like, I got this kid. And you're so fired. You're so fired. But that's my <laughs> that's my Michael Jackson's birthday story. But so the difference in working, 
So I, I lecture at USC, and I have – so when I first got that gig, I, the Michael Jackson gig, I had asked around. I said, who has the most anal advance sheet? And a couple different people sent me theirs, but several people had pointed to one person. And I he made me promise I would never give it out, but he gave me his advance sheet. And I've modified it over the years, and it's what I lecture my students at USC on. It is the same, the questions that it asks, the, the answers that need to be filled out are the same if I'm doing a comedy show on the strip or whether I'm doing you 2 at the Rose Bowl. So it's just the scale of the answers that needs to change. Like there's no heavy equipment needed at, at the comedy store, but I've got 17 forks on the Rose Bowl. You know, it's just the scale of things changes. And in working in the difference of comedy and I mean, man, comedy, you just get so you're able to get so close with the acts. And like my thing with with uh, my moment with Dave Chappelle was that we it was his first time back up, you know, performing in nine years. He's out on tour and we'd had a kind of rough start to things. And it was obvious he was still getting his timing down. And um we were in Fiddler's in Colorado, which has a really strict uh, curfew. And myself and his manager, because we'd heard him do this bit before and we knew how kind of how long it was. And like, we're kind of waving at him like crazy from the side that like, that, you know, be beware of the curfews coming up. And finally he just stops his joke and he turns to me. He's like, what do you two motherfuckers want? <laughs> like the time he goes, he goes, you told me I have to be off at 1059. I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's 1057. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> And like, we just pulled back, we laughed. But like every night of the tour, as David walked off stage, he would hand me his microphone, just kind of, we just gave, give each other a head nod, like great job. And he'd go back and I'd start the loadout. Well, that night he didn't, he walked right past me with the microphone, put it on the desk and walked off the stage. And I was like, oh shit, I'm getting fired. So after I'd got the loadout started, I went to his dressing room to apologize and he just, I'm not going to go into what he said to me. What he said to me was just so kind. And, and you don't really know, like, even, like I perform stand-up, but I don't, I don't have anyone, I don't have a team behind me. But, like, when, on those moments when you do, you kind of forget that, like, man, that team around you is a safety blanket, you know? And, like, who knows what your good luck charm is? And he kind of explained something to me that, that, that yeah, that I was – being that for him on that tour and it, it moved me. And um, like, and I've, I've had some good experiences with musical acts, but not like the connection with comedy. Now going back to gaming, esports, which everyone keeps waiting for it to blow up. It's, I don't know if it's ever going to really blow up on the live event side, but Man, I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding for how many people stream stuff. But so I've done, I started with Call of Duty XP in 2011. Um, and there was, in they, they did this event inside the old Hughes Air Base. And so there was supposed to be a um, gaming side and then like a presentation and concert side. And I thought for sure they were hiring me to do the presentation side. Like, that's that's what I do. And like, no, 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 we need you to oversee gaming. And so we created 
GI Joe headquarters, but I didn't really, you know, a bunch of dudes coming to play video games. Well, I'm watching it. There was a million dollar tournament in it. And, you know, people kept calling these guys athletes. I'm like, whatever. But I started watching it and started having somebody explain to me how the games were played. And it comes down, the finale goes into sudden death overtime. And the, the mode they're playing in is like four on four. And once you die, you're, die, you're dead. So there's only one guy versus one guy. And it's this like plant the bomb scenario where um, all this one guy has to do is stay alive. All he has to do is stay alive and his team wins a million dollars. Well, something like that. And the other guy, he has to kill him. So they see each other shooting. There's literally the audience is doing the 10, 9, 8. And the other guy just starts to run away. Like he realizes all I have to do is stay alive. So the other kid, you'd imagine, like if I was playing the video game, I'd go chase the guy. No, no, no. This kid who's like 19 years old starts walking to his right, pulls out a sniper rifle. Because he knew the map so well, he knew the guy at some point would have to make a right turn, sniped him with two seconds left. His team now wins the championship. And I was like, I can't remember the last time in sports I was so riveted by 10 seconds of sports. Like I was so gripped and exploding. I'm like, man, I get it. And that's when I started realizing that like, man, so many other people don't realize that these aren't appreciating that these guys are athletes in what they do just like a, a race car driver is an athlete um his tools for his sport are different than what we experience that what we're used to but he's still an athlete and that's when it started hitting me like the way that they perceive sound the way that everybody was being put in these soundproof boxes versus having double muffs on the way they were lighting so many people were making the lighting at um at these sport events as like like EDM splash stuff. It's like, no, it has to be a flat lighting so you don't have any kind of weird reflection on their monitors. Um, it kind of helped me for a few years when I was really immersed in it, kind of steer people towards, look, I'm going to make your stage look great for television, but I'm also going to make the playing area great for the athletes. Um, so that is, I mean, essentially from a production standpoint, the differences that I see. So basically, gamers are like athletes. Athletes, as we've discussed before, are like entertainers. Comedians, also entertainers. Full circle, it all comes back to every one of them is essentially the same. We're all just human beings. That too. Well, debatable. <laughs> I'm convinced that that antenna that just got broke, like, I think Ant some alien advanced scouts came, broke that cable, and September 19th, write it down. Man, we getting invaded. Okay, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. If it doesn't come true, no one will remember. That's my, that's my opinion. <laughs> no harm in throwing it out there. Yeah, just throwing the out there. You know, it's just like a bet like anything else. Eddie, I had a question, man. I mean, yeah? knowing you for a long time, and you're – widely respected i mean I've, I've never seen a scenario where productions are coming to a venue and somebody doesn't scream your name and come running across the stage <laughs> i mean how important when you were coming up was mentorship in this production world that we live in oh i mean when i think about the people who really like steered me through you know into the business like some people i'm still embarrassed by my behavior like like, even when I see them to this day, I still think 
maybe I'm doing something wrong because they're such good people. Like, like Reed Bartlett at the wheel turn is still like, he's just such a dad like presence. And he's, you know, like seeing him in his little Hawaiian shirts and how much he loves Jethro Tull and like, just like little, like, I still feel like I'm probably doing something bad, doing something wrong. Um, and, uh, Omar Abdurrahman, who was the production manager on the, on that Stevie Nicks tour, which was my first tour, like such a fun dude. He was raised, his family were the PMs for the Ringling Brothers, Barnum Bailey Circus in the seventies. He's got such a fun kind of circus like presence to him. And, you know, we were on tour when nine 11 happened and just his kind of steady hand and the way we handle things, um, you know, it was, it was a great learning lesson. And, and so I really feel that I'm, I'm, you know, they say like you attract, you know, the law of attraction. And so however you want to see it, I think I've been blessed to have certain really understanding human beings in my life that, um, just, um, presented me with ways that, that I feel are, are fair and just and, and kind, like, like Jake Barry, I'll never forget. I had been told so many stories about Jake Barry and about how crazy he was and how intense and how one thing could set him off. And my first gig with him was you two at the, uh, in Hawaii at the Aloha bowl, which Aloha stadium, which is not an easy place to work. And my boss unfortunately had to fly back to LA to do a show on the actual load-in day. So I was going to be, it was just Jake Barry and I. And for the minute we we met, we just hit it off. And I've learned so many things over Jake from Jake over the years that like, I've never seen the side that people told me about. And like other other production managers that people have said, like, ah, oh, they're, you know, problematic or moody or attitude. I don't know. I just have a great rapport with them. Just have I don't know if it's being from like East coast and West coast and like having like, I can talk East coast or I can talk West coast. I don't know where it happens, but, and, um, but yeah, um, I've had some great mentorships and I think I'm a big believer and there's no such thing as independence. I, I think that's, what's the word I heard? Independence is middle-class blasphemy. Um, interdependent is the word I like. And the best way, like, and that's why I lecture at USC because at some point, I'm going to be old and overpriced, and I'm going to need these kids to hire me. Like, that's just going to be the reality at some point in my life. And I just think it's right to pass on knowledge and make, like, if anything, you know, when I'm gone, just want someone to say, like, yeah, he made it better. He just, what he passed on to me was better than what was passed on to him. And I, I think if you don't, if you have some kind of fear of passing on your knowledge or an insecurity, you're just going about it the wrong way. That's awesome. Do you feel like that's missing from today's uh, work environment where a lot of these young kids are coming up and they're missing that aspect? You know what? As much as you're supposed to say that like, oh, these kids today... I've seen some really wonderful stuff. I'll, I'll, throw, I'll give a shout out to this buddy of mine named Mark, who's, you know, I he used to be this renegade DJ on Holy Ship. And I just always know that, like, 
At the end of Holy Shit, once I'd turned my radio off, we were heading back into port, all in and Tim is done. I knew this guy would be sitting on either one of the back decks, one of those things, and he'd just be like playing a chill DJ set. And I would go there, I'd get myself a beverage. I was finally done working after, you know, three, four days. And I would sit there and just veg out to this guy, vibe out. And then I've watched him come up to the point where he became one of the DJs playing on Holy Ship. And then they gave him like his own responsibility where he was responsible for these renegade sets. And then during this, in the pandemic, he started these Twitch live streams and he started calling them, there was work days and work weeks where he would come to work nine to five every day and do and DJ 40 hours a week. Like this is what we're doing. We got to go to work. And he invited me to on his, his work weeks to do comedy at like the beginning of the week and the end of the week. And it was like one of those cases where he's like, Hey man, I want to pay it forward. I know you're not doing anything. Like let's see if people will Venmo you some money for you telling people jokes or telling people stories. And so I, I feel like, that this next generation, I think we're in good hands. I, I, I think it's still important to teach when you can. And some people are going to accept it and some people are going to okay boomer you. But um, I still think it's important to at least try to mentor people. And, I've, and, and I think people today, I don't want to say kids, but like younger people really do have a good bullshit meter. And like, you know, and at least I'd hope so. And those who I've talked to, you know, they pick it up and it's cool to see. Appreciate like, that know, positive you, outlook, man. <laughs> I'm gonna say, do you know um do you know um oh man, uh Davy Martinez? Yes, yes, so yes, yes, yes. So I'll never forget this. So whole uh hard summer or uh, hard Halloween twenty thirteen or twenty no, twenty twelve. I was forty. Um, I, I had a very great evening to, before I won't go into details and, <laughs> um, the show went amazing. And at the end of the show, um, I'm standing in front of house. Justice is killing it. Like 35,000 people in the park are waving their hands, jumping up and down. And Gary Rich is there and he fist pumps and he's like, Eddie, look what we did, man. Look what we started and where we're at. And like Skrillex is standing there. He's like, bro, you guys are the kings of LA. Like you killed it. Like, I can't believe what you've done. And I'm like, that's a pretty high career point. But I'm walking off because I'm like, all right, loadout's got to start. Enough, you know, enough praise. Now I got to go to back to work. And this this kid comes up and he goes, hey, man, are you Eddie Sato? And I'm like, it. I might be, depends. And he's like, no, do you, did you lecture in Ken Lopez's class at USC? And I got to do. And he goes, Hey man, I was, I took that class and I got to tell you now I'm Skrillex's LD, but now that I'm on the road, those things you said, your five tenants, like there's not a day where one of those doesn't get checked off on my box. I just want to thank you. And I like, I just like welled up crying. Like, Oh man, it's really dusting in this field kid. Uh, thanks man. Whatever I can do. And like walked away. And now I've seen him like, now he's like Beyonce's LD. Like, like, I feel like, you know, some little word I threw out in class helped this kid at some point come up. And now he's like, he's, he's reached that level. And it's, that's super rewarding to see. And if you can't, like, I'm a big believer, like, if you get in this business for like money, sex, or drugs, like the drugs will kill you. The sex isn't with who you thought it was going to be. And the money's not always going to be there. So 
If you're in this business for anything other than to fill some kind of weird emotional hole that you have inside you that is only filled by the enjoyment of others, you've picked the right career and that's what you need to feed off of. And that's, that's, that's how I run my life. Uncle Eddie. So, so Eddie, you, you, you said something about the five tenets at the beginning of this podcast, and I was just about to pick that up again. And there you go, referencing it again right now. So a perfect kind of dovetail to our conversation before we go into our quick hits, which we always do at the end, the first tenant you referred to was essentially knowing all of the roles. I believe you said all the rungs on the ladder. Be good what are at, the other tenants? The other tenants, so they're in order, it's be good at every rung. Um, it ain't rocket science. Like that's my like, I, I can't stand working with people who work in panic mode. Like what we do, like it's not, you know, we're not curing cancer. We're not, it's not rocket science. Like just do the gig, just do your job and it will, it'll be, it'll happen. Uh, then I have the Icarus rule. Do not fly close to the sun. As I'm very early on decided I would make it a habit of not necessarily hanging out with the artist. Um, I always tell people the first person, I always ask my class, who do you think the first person fired on a tour is? And it's the monitor engineer, because that is the person that lets the artist know how they sound. And if you don't make the artist sound to themselves as they want to hear it, you're canned. Um, so, and the other thing about that is, um, you can't go party with the artist. Like we're that guy, we're that person at a party that goes around. You, everyone has this friend that walks around a party and cleans up all the cans before the party is even over. Like that's your job. Like you work in this business, you're, you're the cleanup. You're not, you're the person putting on the party. You don't get to be part of the party. Rule number five, number four is you can ruin shit. And that's, that's more like. It's very much for this social media age with people sharing pictures and, and insider information to try and get people to scoop. I'm just a big believer. Like, let let people have their their fantasies, their imagination. Like, let them be surprised by the look and the sound and what the set list is. Like, let them discover it on their own. And then my number one tenant, and this is across work, life, everything, is come from a place of love. Like, Literally ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I doing this out of greed? Am I doing this out of spite? Or am I doing this from, am I coming from a place of love? Am I, am I, whatever I'm trying to relate or do, is this to make things better? Is it to spread love, spread joy? And, um, yeah, like, I'm not get too far into that, but that is, that is number one tenet. I think that's fantastic. I think we found our title for today's episode, Five Tenets. What, what is it exactly, the five tenets of, do, is it a, do you just, have a title? No, it's just, a, well, at the end of, of the lecture, it's always, Eddie, how do we become, how do, how do I become you? And I was like, these are the five tenets that I, you know, remind myself on, you know, if not daily, weekly basis of how to do things. Copy that. Yeah. So, about to move into our quick hits, but I also want to point out one more quick thing. Your email signature, your <laughs> title that you have for yourself is organizational genius slash creative force. 
You can put whatever you want in a signature line on your personal email, and I that, those are the two things that uh, I've just always like liked. Organizational genius. You know, you see that in like somebody's obituary or something. You know, like they were an organizational genius. And then creative force. I always love that in the article where they're like the creative force behind, you know, Ally McBeal, you know, the creative force. And I'm like, yes, I'm a creative force. <laughs> Copy <laughs> that. Ally McBeal fan. Got it. <laughs> totally. That little <laughs> dancing baby. Who could ever forget it? <laughs> Jesus. Well, there it is, everybody. Eddie Sato. So, Eddie. All right. Moving into our quick hits, and then we'll get you out of here. Can, I throw, can I throw one quick hit out? Because I listened to you guys hey. talk about Kamala Harris, and you were talking about like driving conscience. Am I the only person that has, at least in the last 24 hours, had 100 people send them across social media that picture of the concert in Newcastle? Yes. Like, yes. please, people, if I could stop. anything, please stop sending me that picture. This is not Thank a you. business model for our success. Definitely yes. not. Christine <laughs> it's Dallas. It's just nothing but a nightmare. <laughs> Christine Dallas, I may, not, I may not know you, but I'm happy to hear your voice in this dude's soup. You so know me. Yeah, you so know me. You've, uh, you've been that salvation in stormy seas many a time. Because, oh, um, yeah, out there in the field, you are the man. And it's been really interesting listening to this because... Oh, you're my real Christine Dallas. Oh, yeah, the one, the only. <laughs> Come on. Uh-huh. But yeah. yeah, you know, it's wild listening to... Because I'd never had this conversation with you before but now it explains a lot sensei i understand your your motives and where you come from and no it's interesting because my background i started on the promoter side and Mm -hmm. um i second very much what you say you know thank you so that's good to hear you thanks for joining us and yeah and i am uh i am an independent um like i it's kind of written down like i've only twice ever voted for a member of a major party for president but I am so on board with Kamala Harris because I one as a mutt, like as an Asian mutt, I am, you know, I'll get behind anybody. And if you guys have never seen Ronnie Chang's stand up special where he kind of says that we should you should just hand the country over to Asians because we don't care. We just want shit to work. Like, yeah, I am on board. We just want shit to work. <laughs> We just want shit to work. Well, if those aren't words to live by and a reason to vote in this upcoming election, I don't know what is. Yep. So, Eddie, again, moving into our quick hits, your first tour, what was it? Uh, Stevie Nicks, the Trouble in Shangri-La tour, 2001. There it is. You did say that before. A single best moment. You've, you've told us so many. Can you give us one best moment or experience? Uh. So I got thousands of them, but this is one that my my coworkers love teasing me about, and I'm very Schadenfreude, so I love people being able to make fun of me. We were doing Beyonce at the uh, Dodger Stadium, and that tour, you know, she did the thing with the in the water effect out of front of house um, at the end of the show, and I am standing back of stage, standing on steps, um, waiting to call house lights. I'm on radio with the house engineer and there's the line of suvs jay-z standing just a few feet away waiting for beyonce to come out and the dancers they have to they come back they go into a quick change they put towels on and they come running by me and something in my head says 
oh my Lord, you're about to see a wet Beyonce come walking by you. And like literally my brain was like, mouth, don't say anything. We know you, mouth, don't say anything. (laughs) So here she comes like in slow-mo Charlie's Angels, a goddess with her hair up in a towel. She's glistening. She's beautiful. And mouth doesn't listen to brain. Mouth goes like in a 15-year-old's voice, nice show, Beyonce. <laughs> and she looks at me and she just kind of like nods her head and she goes, thank you. And then walks past me. And like my knees melted a little bit. And I called, uh, you know, called House Lights. But I guess another one of my coworkers wasn't too far away and literally went, nice show, Beyonce. And it has become the nonstop thing that my coworkers tease me by every now and then at the end of a show. They'll be like, nice show, Beyonce. Like, yeah, I'll never live it down. But no one can ever take that moment from Bay and me where she nodded and said thank you to me. <laughs> from Bay and me. <laughs> like, no. I, I, and trust me, like, I go way back with her where to, like, a Jingle Ball 2002 to see her, like, from what that era is to now is just, like, she's She's earned. She's earned everything. She's a worker. She was a worker in 2002 when I met her, and she's still, yeah. I man, don't begrudge her any of her success. Get it. I mean, if it's any consolation, I, I mean, I know when Dallas and me were at B and J's house not long ago, she actually told us that story too. <laughs> she's like, oh, you know, little Eddie. He said nice show to me one time, so I said thank you. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how it never Reminiscing. Happened. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, tell her I said hello. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, most important question of all if there is any one thing about the industry you'd like to see us doing better, what is it? Oh, man, it's, it's, this sounds so cheesy, but just like the competition that, ex- that exists, it's like, hey, we're all in this together. Like it always makes me laugh when you ask that question about the difference in promoters, because I'm down here at the general and soldier level. And like, we all share, we all share the same information with each other. So these companies that think, Oh, we're creating this and we're doing that. And meanwhile, those of us work together, we call each other like, Hey man, um, how are you doing this? Ah, that'd be cool. I think we're going to, you know, just, I don't know. I just, and I kind of like this with COVID where it's like so many of us, at least, at my level are talking to each other and trying to come up with ideas and trying to figure out how to do things. And it's, it's cool. It's nice. But some people, I feel like they, this dig in too hard and want you to like battle each other and talk smack about each other. And it's just uh, unnecessary. It's one big happy family. Now, not to, to take anything away from that because I appreciate everything you just said, but you essentially just said we are already a, this great big family. The question is, what could we be doing better? How can you? Oh no, no, no! I meant like those of us at my level. You know, we're we're a family, and and I just, um, I don't know. It's a hippy dippy thought of my own. I don't really know how to make things better. I mean, right now, um, I'm like, can you just mobilize all of us to become contact tracers? Can we? just shut the country down for four weeks and take all the unemployed, uh, 
like I wrote something at the very beginning of this pandemic where I was like, look, you're shutting this, the, the country down and you need to, you're talking about bringing in the national guard to build these um, alternative care sites. Like I got nothing but stage hands and a lot of tents that were supposed to be out at Coachella. Like we'll build these things. Like, let's do it. I wrote this on Facebook and it 300 people liked it and shared it and groups started um, like put us to work like right now, put us to work. And like how many hundreds of thousands of unemployed techs are out there that could be contact tracing. Like, let's do this. Let's, 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 let's get the country healthy. I appreciate that. And and I'm going to file your answer under crew care, which for the record has been our number one, most common response. It's all about uh, that family vibe and everyone reiterates that spirit. So we really appreciate you being with us today. Final question. And I know you actually had a deadline, so we're getting you out just on time. Any shout outs or parting shots? Oh, my parting shot was the, was going to be to list uh, the five tenants. Um, so no, I, I'm just uh, thank you guys for having me on. I love, um, love what, podcasts are doing and people being able to share and the collective stories that we all have and that keep us connected and keep us um, in this time where we're all separated. Uh, It's important. And it's important to do, you know, on a regular basis, even when we do get back to work, let's keep connected. Well, we appreciate that very much. Eddie Sato, everybody shout out to you. Shout out to my co-hosts, Dallas and Banks for being with us today. Shout-outs to Brother Kyle. I like to call him Mr. Motherfucker. But our hearts are with you. Our hearts are with everybody who's dealing with all kinds of crazy bullshit in this day and age. And we just look forward to getting past it. We look forward to getting back to work. We will be coming back to you in the very near future, as referenced in the beginning, with ways that other roadies in our community are looking to mobilize, come together, find work, take care of one another, and get, dear leader, the fuck out of office. But until then, two reminders per usual. One, please vote. And two, wear a fucking mask. As always, you can find us at HLUB Podcast on Instagram, hustlelikeyoubroke.com. And on that note, thank you all and good night.